Jude, Epistle of Jude, and we'll read verses 1 and 2 this evening. We read through the chapter, or through the epistle, the 25 verses of Jude. We read through them on last Wednesday as we I provided you an overview of the book, and we kind of, of course, focused in on the theme and, and the purpose of the writing and some of the, of course, historical background of this and things that were going on that would cause Jude, John, Peter to write as they did, and even Paul uh, concerning the writing and the times in which they were writing, and we, we considered, of course, several things concerning that. And we're going to review some of that again tonight because it's the introduction and we dealt somewhat with this last week, and so we're going to peer into this a little further uh, this evening. But look with me in Jude, and we'll just read verse 1 and verse 2 together. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Last week we began our study of this epistle of Jude, and I provided, as I mentioned, an overview of this epistle. And while Jude is one of the shorter letters within the New Testament, I made mention last week, and I want to say this again, and we need to be conscious of this in both Old and New Testament, that the brevity of an epistle or the brevity of a book of Scripture in no way reduces the significance of the content of the epistle or of the book that has been written. And this truth is extremely clear within the epistle of Jude. As we begin our introduction into this epistle of Jude, we again will revisit some of the things we addressed in the overview, specifically that which was declared within the first verse, because last week we did deal with this to some degree. So we begin by looking at the introduction here in Jude verses 1 and 2. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So the introduction within the first two verses of this epistle consists of three elements. First, you have the introduction of the writer, Jude himself. Then you have the introduction of the audience, those to whom the epistle is written, those who are addressed. And then you have the introductory greeting. And the introduction of the writer of the epistle, we began again. This is somewhat review from last week, but we need to to step forward as we progress through this epistle. And the introduction of the writer of the epistle here we find... Uh, is in the first word of the first verse, Jude, of course. And then he goes on to say, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. In Matthew's gospel record, we are told again that James and Judas were the brothers of Jesus. And I told you as well last week that those named Jude were also referred to as Judas, and this would have been a common name in the first century uh, time of, of the church here. And so this would have been a, a common uh, name among those a, that are, are present in this, in this audience even. And so here we find in Matthew 13, 53 through 56, the gospel of Matthew records uh, the truth that James and Judas are, being, are the brothers of, of Jesus. In Matthew 13, 53, it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? 
So again, we see his name, his name Judas here, referred to as Judas, but you have James and Judas, brothers, not only brothers to one another, but brothers or half-brothers, we would say, to the Lord Jesus Christ, because of course, Mary is their, is their mother. The epistle continues in Jude. He says, not only Jude, but the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So Jude identified as the servant of Jesus Christ and also as the brother of James to give us, I believe, more clarity here as far as distinguishing who this is. And by Jude's identification as the brother of James, we understand that Jude, again, had this familial connection to Christ. But what's important concerning this connection, I mentioned to you last week, is that this connection of being a half-brother of Jesus, obviously, that this is not the emphasis of Jude's introduction. He's not saying, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, but rather he says, I'm the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, which gives us that connection. But obviously, Jude considers it more important. He deems it more, a greater significance to identify as the servant of Jesus Christ and even the half-brother brother of Jesus Christ. Now again, that's important because when you think about this in relation to the Jews as a whole, and you think about the Jewish people, and you think about the Pharisees and such religious leaders, recall with me, as I mentioned last week in John's gospel, that the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they would immediately go back to their, their natural uh, roots, if you will, in that they would say that we are of our father Abraham, we are Abraham's seed, and they were trying to make that connection to Abraham as though that is what gave them significance, while all the while they were rejecting the very Son of God, the very one who had called Abraham, the very one who had appointed Abraham to be the father of the faithful, if you will, the very one who had called Abraham unto righteousness. And so here they reject Jesus Christ, and yet they are embracing this physical connection that they had with Abraham. And that was something common of the Jews, especially here in the first century, because of the fact of rejecting Jesus. So they have to have some lineage to which they would claim and hold to that they saw to be of some tremendous significance. And so it's interesting to hear that Jude, rather than talking anything about this relationship or this connection, he says, I'm the servant of Jesus and the brother of of James. And so to be a servant of Jesus Christ as a spiritual brother was greater to Jude than was the claim to be a part of the earthly family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the introduction of the audience of the epistle we find next in Jude verse 1 he goes on to say to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. I mentioned again last week that Jude identified his audience by three distinct conditions. They were sanctified by God. Sanctification is a positional truth which is manifested in a practical manner. We are positionally sanctified. When we are born again, we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is the new birth. That's what this means. So to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit is to be positionally set apart. Because remember, sanctified does not mean cleaned up. We, we, we tend to, to define sanctification as though it is this a cleansing. And though there is cleansing involved in sanctification, sanctification itself is being set apart. Now, that is set apart unto God, which of course is to be separated from sin. So yes, there is that element of a departure from sin. But let us understand, the greater of the two realities of sanctification is that we are set apart unto God. This is what's greater than even being set apart from sin. But yet to be set apart unto God is to be set apart 
from sin. And so this, this setting apart, if you will, is a positional truth of the Spirit of God, as Paul mentioned in Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, 13 and 14, he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So here Paul is saying it's the sanctification through the Spirit which brings us to this belief of the truth. I'm reminded again of John chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, or the account is given there when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. And if you recall with me, he says again, ye must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But then you come to John three sixteen, and we know this verse again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life he that believeth on him hath uh is not condemned he that believeth not is condemned or, or and god said not a son into the world condemned the world but that the world through him might be saved he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god and so when you see these verses together we we, we really focus a lot of course on belief there right belief and, and last night in our theology class, I was dealing with this, that to actually believe from a biblical standpoint and def- definition is to entrust one's spiritual, totally entrust one's spiritual well-being to Christ. And so we've redefined this, this term belief or this word belief because today when people talk about belief, do you believe Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe he is the Savior? And what they're asking is not what the Scripture is actually speaking of so many times. What men usually are referring to today, and this is evident by the results or by the outcome of even those who claim belief, and many that is, and and what is actually being asked is, do you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? Do you acknowledge that he is the Savior? Do you you acknowledge? But that's not entrusting your spiritual well-being to him. To truly believe is to cast yourself totally dependent on, upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And if you've not done that, then you've not believed. It doesn't matter how much acknowledging you may do. And so it's important that we recognize this. So when, when, when Paul states in 2 Thessalonians here, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, and in John 3 where we're told that Jesus says, that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, you must be born again. And then verses later, Whosoever believeth on him, which again is not an imperative statement. It is a declarative statement. Again, please hear me. John 3.16 is not a call for people to believe. It is an explanation of the truth of those who have believed. And they have eternal life. They possess eternal life. And they are not condemned. But all those who have not believed are condemned. And so this is what's being explained in John chapter 3. We've turned John chapter 3, not we, but many, into an invitation. That is not an invitation. It is a declarative statement. And you cannot make a declarative statement an imperative statement just because you want to. It's what it is in the grammar. And so it is making a a factual statement. And it's saying that those who have believed, but belief is not just saying Jesus is Lord. Belief is that total trusting in completely entrusting one's spiritual well-being to Jesus Christ. Again, I said last week, I'll say to you again, my entire eternity hinges on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his accomplished work. Totally, completely, my entire eternal existence is hinged on Jesus alone. 
my, listen, please hear me. And I don't want to, I don't want to bog down here. I really don't, but I feel like I do believe I need to say this um, and maybe emphasize this for a moment. The fact that I've been in church my entire life has no weight in my eternity. The fact that I pastor a church for 20, not over 19 years now has no weight in my eternity, concerning my eternity. Are you following this? The fact that I am engaged in ministry has absolutely no weight in determining my eternity. I am telling you my entire eternal existence is dependent upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's what it means to believe. But then that transforms us. Sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So by the sanctification of the Spirit being set apart unto God, I am now a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. John makes the statement. Um, we were just dealing with this last night. Let me, let me pause for just one moment. I want to pull this up. I did not intend to do this, but I believe I, I need to do this. So if you look in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. Now let me explain this before we go any further because this is very important. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 4, John says, These things write I unto you that your joy may be full. So John is saying, I'm writing this epistle and all therein so that you might experience a fullness of joy. But then in chapter 5, 13, in, in chapter 5, he really summarizes the entirety of the epistle. And we've seen that through our previous studies of this book. But look with me in verse 13. These things have I written unto you. Now he's saying, not I write unto you, but I've written all of this because he's concluding the epistle now. He says, I've written this Unto you that believe, here it is again. You know what the word believe means? Totally entrusting one's spiritual well-being to Christ. That believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And the word know here means see. Again, this is a cognitive realization. It's not talking about some emotional experience or some feeling, subjective feeling that you possess. This is talking about that you may see. All this I have written that is absolute evidence, irrefutable evidence that you possess eternal life because all of these truths that are in you because, remember, the, the tests that are in First John, let me mention this, that all the tests, specifically eight as we categorize them, the eight tests that are in First John are not standards to which we are attempting to measure up. That's not what these tests are. These tests are the proofs that one is in genuine relationship and fellowship with the Lord. And so I told you that it's interesting as you study through 1 John that we, we come to understand that the, the confidence that we possess of having eternal life does not hinge on any one of those proofs, but it's collectively all of those proofs. And so there's irrefutable evidence that one is in genuine relationship and fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ his Son. So then John writes, saying all that, let's look at verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So I've written all of this to you in these previous chapters here, that ye may know, cognitively understand, that you may see, that you have this confidence that you have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, look at what John says here. This is what I was getting to. I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So what did John just say? He said, I have written this unto those who do believe. And he previously had stated, I write this unto you 
in chapter 1, verse 4, that your joy may be full. So he's saying, I'm writing all this to you so you experience a fullness of joy. This is why I'm doing this. What is that fullness of joy? Well, here it is. Believing on the name of the Lord Jesus, knowing, seeing, understanding by biblical evidence, inspired by God, that we have eternal life, we possess eternal life, right now, not will, but we do, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. This joy is not something just handed to us and then God walks away from it and says, oh, here's your joy, do the best you can with it. No, John is saying, I've written all of this so that you understand, those who do believe, those who totally rest and trust in Jesus, that you understand that he has given you eternal life, which is eternal. Furthermore, this confidence of this working of God's Spirit in your life to bring you to totally rest in the sufficiency of Christ will continue to cause you to rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Here is the joy of the Christian life. The true joy is is not simply that I know I'm going to heaven one day, though I take great joy in that. The joy is that I am constantly, through God's Word, by His Spirit, throughout my life, being driven to believe all the more upon Jesus Christ and to rest all the more upon his sufficiency. And the more I am resting upon his sufficiency, the more joy I am experiencing, understanding first, this is all of grace, nothing I have done nor will do or can do, and that he is all sufficient to complete this work which he has begun. And so there is great joy in this. And so when we, when we consider what, what John is saying here, he's saying, I've written this so that you might believe, or those who have believed, that you might know, that you might understand and see cognitively, intellectually, intellectually not meaning that this comes through human wisdom, but because of the Spirit of God illuminating our understanding to His truth, we are sure of this, we understand this, we are confident that we have eternal life. Again, listen, Eternal life has nothing to do with feelings whatsoever. Eternal life is a faith. And faith is absolute belief and trusting in what God has said, not how you feel. And so totally resting and trusting in God is God's given to us eternal life. And then these are the evidences. He doesn't just see this is not subjective. It's not about, oh, well, so yeah, you say you believe. No, if you really believe, if you really are trusting him, then all of these Proofs will be evident in your life. Not perfectly, but they will be evident. And that's what John is saying here. So, when we consider, when we consider this truth of belief, as it's mentioned um, in, in this passage, being sanctified by God and belief of the truth, sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians two thirteen and 14. Here he says, God's chosen us to salvation, positionally sanctified us by His Spirit, which brings us to this belief of the truth. 1 Corinthians 6.11, we see further this truth of the sanctification by God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Again, notice these are all past tense. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So the evidence of sanctification, again, is irrefutable. There will be a distinct difference within the life including the lifestyle of those who've been sanctified by the Spirit of God. This is not taught at perfection. John deals with that as well. And I'm not trying to rehearse all of John, but I'm just saying 
uh, to remind you that John states that if a man says he has not sinned, then he's made God a liar, right? The truth is not in him. So yes, we still sin. It's not saying we don't ever commit a sin, but we do not live and practice lawlessness and live in sin whenever we've been sanctified by the Spirit of God. In other words, there is a desire for righteousness, and righteousness will be worked out of us because righteousness has been imputed unto us. And so because it is within us, because Christ dwells within us, righteousness is now... Okay, for the child of God to live righteously is just as, as natural or comes just as naturally as it does for someone who's unregenerate to live sinfully. We still have a sin nature. I'm, not, I'm no way denying that. But I'm saying to you, righteousness is a product not of your efforts. Righteousness is the result of Christ in you. And if he lives in you, then he's going to be manifested through your life. It, it's inevitable. It's going to be reality. So, second, not only were they sanctified by God, but Paul or Jude addresses his audience by saying that they are those who were preserved in Jesus Christ. Jude further emphasized this truth in the concluding statements of this epistle in verse 24 when he said, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Think about this for a minute. Even what Jude says here, and we'll get to this eventually in the study, I'm sure. But he says, To him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. Is the claim, is Jude making this claim that God is going to work in us to a point to where before we actually step into eternity, there is no fault in us? Of course not. What is the faultlessness based on? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is faultless. He is righteous. He is blameless. We are found in Him. So therefore, he's not saying you're going to reach a point to where he's going to work it out. He's going to keep you and preserve you to the point and perfect you to the point that you're going to stand before him without sin because he's brought you. No, we only stand before him in righteousness and in holiness and in faultlessness because he in whom we are found is righteous and faultless and holy, which is Jesus Christ. And by the way, he says, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Why, why, are we, why do we have exceeding joy? Think about this for a moment. If, if, if we reach some sinless perfection by something we've done, that's not exceeding joy. The exceeding joy is realization. Again, this is all of grace and all because of Christ. Therefore, we are so joyful because we know we don't deserve this and we don't deserve to be here. The passage exhorts the reader to test all things here when he says, and uphold that which is good or godly and refrain from all, all forms of sin. We've seen that last week in our, in our studies where this was brought out that we were to, to do such. Then third, these are those who were, were called by God. The, these three conditions are part of the all-inclusive uh, work of salvation as provided by God in Jesus Christ. In other words, if one is sanctified by God, he's also preserved in Jesus Christ and called by God to live in the truth and glory of this redemptive work in Jesus Christ. Paul expresses these three truths together in his epistle to the Thessalonians again when he says, we are bound to give thanks always to you for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord 
because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is explaining the same truth here as well. Then we saw uh, letter C, the introductory greeting I mentioned a moment ago. Verse 2, now we move forward. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So Jude's greeting to his audience is akin to that which is commonly found within the New Testament epistles. Many of the New Testament epistle writers begin their letters in a very similar manner. In each of his epistles, Paul mentions grace and peace. And in the pastoral epistles, he also includes mercy within this greeting. So Paul says grace and peace in all of his epistles. And then he says, and mercy in his pastoral epistles. In both of Peter's epistles, Peter's greetings include the multiplication of grace and peace. And in his second epistle, John mentions grace, mercy, and peace in truth and love. So this is a common introduction or introductory greeting. And of course, as we are studying this epistle of Jude, Jude mentions, as we've just read in verse 2, the multiplication of mercy, the multiplication of peace, and the multiplication of love in his greeting, which is, again, clearly very similar to these other New Testament epistles. So the question then remains, what does Jude mean within this greeting? Why does he write in this manner? Is he just copying Peter? Is he just copying Paul? Or why would Jude, and for that matter, all the other writers include such a greeting in their epistles? Why would they even write this? And the answer is quite simple. While we view such language, as I've often mentioned along lines such as this in greetings and in, in closings of letters and things, we often view such language as merely an introduction, which we must stop and pause and remember this truth, that these greetings, including the greetings we read in Jude, that all of these greetings are holy writ. They are provided by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this greeting cannot simply be passed off as though it is nothing more than a mere casual greeting, but we must understand it to be at the very heart of not only Jude and the other writers, but more importantly, this greeting expresses the very desire of the Holy Spirit within the lives of those to whom these epistles were written. So while Jude does not include grace within his greeting, this is very interesting, it is still noteworthy that mercy, peace, and love are all a part of God's grace. Because all of these, mercy, peace, and love, are the unmerited favor of God bestowed unto us. So in reality, Jude is expounding upon this grace of God as he prays for God's mercy, God's peace, and God's love to abound in the lives of the reader. When he speaks about this multiplying or this multiplication, he's talking about there being an abundance of this peace, an abundance of a realization of this love, an abundance of a realization of this mercy. So let's look at what he says first. Mercy be multiplied unto you. Now while mercy is only extended because of grace, that is God's goodness or his kindness, given to those who are undeserving, mercy is truly a counterpart to grace. Grace is getting what I don't deserve, such as mercy. I don't deserve God's mercy, and by God's grace, I receive mercy, which I do not deserve. While mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what I do deserve. And that's all because of grace. So these are inseparable truths. One cannot receive 
the mercy of God apart from the grace of God because one doesn't deserve mercy. Thence, if he does receive mercy, it's all unmerited goodness of God towards this individual. And the fact that one would receive grace that is undeserved is all part of this work of mercy and grace together, hand in hand, in that grace is me getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. So if I do not get what I deserve, and that is mercy, it still comes by the means of grace, God's goodness which is bestowed upon me. And it is only by the mercy of God that I even receive His grace, meaning this, I am not getting what I do deserve, but I'm receiving grace in place of that. So one cannot say, oh, I've received the grace of God without the mercy of God, or I've received the mercy of God apart from the grace of God, because it's just impossible. So Jew here is expressing his desire that the reader realize and acknowledge and experience the abundant mercy of God and from God. When David wrote Psalm 23, he concluded the psalm by stating, verse 23, 6, Surely goodness, which is Grace. Goodness is grace. Grace is goodness. Grace, by definition, is the kindness and the goodness of God, which is unmerited. So, he says, surely goodness, or we could say grace, and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Then he goes on to say, number two, peace be multiplied unto you. The peace of God has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And we are at peace with our Creator because of His Son. It is God who initiated. It is God who provided. It is God who, up, who upholds the peace which He has provided us in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, Paul says this. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell in Christ. And having made peace, God the Father has made peace through the blood of Jesus' cross by Him, by the Son, to reconcile all things unto himself, unto the Father. By him, I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. And so here, Paul is writing Colossians, and he's saying that God was pleased, the Father was pleased, that all fullness be demonstrated and manifested, personified, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that God, having offered his Son, the offering for sin, for atonement, that now we are redeemed and God has made peace between us and Him, between Him and us, through His Son. So here, what is being stated, Jude is saying that you might experience the abundance of the mercy of God that you might experience an abundance of this peace of God, that we would continue to recognize the, the truth that God alone has provided this peace. And then he says, love, third, love be multiplied unto you. God has demonstrated his love for us. He has extended his love to us. And he has preserved us in his love all through the revelation of Jesus Christ and the redemption he has provided for us in Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10. And there's many verses we could look at, but 1 John 4, 9 and 10, John wrote, And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. 
and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning victim for our sins, the atonement for our sins. Romans 5.8, Paul says something very similar when he said, but God commendeth, and the word commendeth here means demonstrated. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's saying God's love was demonstrated, God's love was manifested, how? Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But then Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul goes on to say, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Never forget this. Men know nothing of the love of God apart from Jesus Christ. God's love is manifested, God's love is demonstrated, and God's love is realized, and God's love is received, and God's love is experienced, if I can use that word, only in Jesus Christ. This is God's love. Jude writes to those who he says have been sanctified by the Father, preserved in the Lord Jesus Christ, and called to this redemption. And he does so with the prayer and desire that all those who know the Lord Jesus will continue to abound in God's mercy, abound in God's peace, and abound in God's love as provided for us in Jesus Christ. Hear me again. If I told you my eternity hinges alone on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, then let me ask you this question. Does it not stand to reason that if I'm going to know the abundance of God's mercy, if my whole eternity hinges on the provision of God in Jesus Christ, in whom God's mercy is made known to me, God's love is made known to me, God's peace is made known to me, God's grace is made known to me, if this is true, which it is, obviously, then if I'm going to abound in God's mercy, I must abound in Jesus Christ and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If I'm going to abound in God's peace, I must abound in my understanding of Christ and this redemptive work and understanding what he has accomplished. If I'm going to abound in God's love, the love of God is only in Jesus Christ. That's it. So if I'm going to know God's love, I must know Christ. And when I say know Christ, not only again in salvation, but as Paul mentions in Philippians, that I may know him in every possible manner, that I may know the depths that I may know the riches, as he speaks of in Ephesians, that I may know the wealth of the person of Jesus Christ. Because to know him, to continue, as John says in chapter 5, 1 John 5, 13, to continue to know him is to know the fullness of joy. Isn't it interesting how many people who profess to be believers in Christ are looking for fulfillment or joy in anything and everything other than knowing Christ when this is the very source and provision of God for and of joy, of peace, of mercy, of grace. Christ is all of this personified. He is truly the mercy of God in the flesh. He is, who came in the flesh, I'm saying. He is the love of God who came in the flesh. He is the grace of God. He is the glory of God 
who came in the flesh. He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is God in the flesh, the very Son of God. And yet people are constantly looking everywhere and anywhere other than Christ to attempt to find some joy, fulfill their joy, fulfill, find fulfillment and purpose in life, to try to find some satisfaction. I'm talking believers, or at least professing believers. They're always looking somewhere to something. How about this? Looking to church, looking to ministry, looking some form of something to give me some sense of peace and fulfillment and joy and ex- abundance of love and mercy and grace experiencing these things when I'm telling you our eternity hinges on the sufficiency of Christ. And if that is true, that means my entire, eter- my, my entire spiritual life hinges on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. But I have great news. Christ is all-sufficient. So we can know this joy, we can know this love, we can know this peace, we can know this grace, we can know the very glory of God in the person of Christ because He is all-sufficient. So may we look to Him. Jude says, I'm writing to those who are sanctified by God, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called by God into this redemption, called this sanctification. And then he says, My prayer is that you, but this is the working of God's Spirit in Jude as he is writing, and he is saying, I desire, I pray that you experience the abundance, that you know the abundance of God's mercy. You know the abundance of God's peace. You know the abundance of God's love. And where do we know that abundance? It's in Jesus. May it be that we are consumed with him. Maybe we are consumed by him, that we might desire to know him as Paul expressed, may that genuinely be the very passion and, and drive of our, our earthly existence to know Christ. For it is in Christ where God's peace, love, mercy, joy, grace is found and known.